Earlier this month, the Australian Prudential Regulation Authority, or APRA for short, wrote to home loan lenders across the country to recommend strengthening mortgage lending assessments. The reason for this? The explosive and rapid increase in housing prices due to extended lockdowns and low interest rates, and a rapid growth in bank lending to buy them. Households are borrowing more money than ever to reach the extraordinary prices needed to secure a home. But is this the right move? Who does it help and who does it hurt? And will it be enough to restrain a market that doesn't show signs of slowing down anytime soon? Or are there more changes yet to come? I'm Kat Clay, Head of Digital Communications, and with me is Brendan Coates, Economic Policy Program Director to discuss how to rein in property prices in Australia and whether we should. Welcome, Brendan. Hi, Kat. Good to be with you. So last time we talked about housing, you and I were both on the market for a new property and I ended up buying a fantastic place after months of searching and bidding at auctions fruitlessly. How are you going with the housing adventures? Yeah, mine's not as successful as yours, Kat. I'm still looking, um, although I'm, for those that are on the video feed, you may be able to see a bit of a packing box in the background, and that is as we are packing up our house in order to sell it. So since you've given me the platform, free advert, if someone's looking for a three-bedroom house in Preston, so just south of Bell Street uh, in Melbourne, get in touch via email or on the on Twitter. I feel like that, that should be on Grattan's register of conflict of interest, but anyway, we'll keep going. And we note that it is south of Bell Street. That's a very important criteria here at Grattan. Exactly. You know, that was the criteria when we first bought. But no, the short answer is uh, this is a tale of you've been successful. Um, I'm still on the journey, but hopefully not for too much longer. That's why West is best, man. So on to actually talking about APRA, because we could do a whole podcast about our housing uh, dramas from the past year. What exactly has APRA announced here and why is that? So first of all, it's probably worth sort of mentioning what APRA is. So it's the Prudential Regulatory Authority. What that basically means, it's the regulator of the banks. It's to make it's there to make sure that, you know, banks, you know, don't lose your money, basically, that, you know, you don't lose your deposits. So it's there to make sure that banks are not making loans that are too risky uh, in order to make sure that we don't see banks fail, which is a very costly thing if it does happen. Now, what the APRA has announced um, is that they've written to the banks saying that from uh, start of October, they're going to ask banks to assess people's ability to repay the mortgage when you apply for a home loan, assuming an interest rate that is three percentage points above the rate that's being offered. At the moment, that buffer is only two and a half percent. And so you're assessing your ability to repay uh, out of your current income, assuming the rate is three percentage points higher. Now, that's partly because interest rates have been low. Um, they've been at essentially at record lows. The cash rates are 0.1%. You can regularly get a mortgage in Australia now for less than 2% interest rate. That means that people are borrowing a lot more. But, and so if your interest rate being offered is, say, 2%, then the bank's going to assess you assuming the mortgage rate is 5%. If your interest rate being offered is 2.5%, they'll assume the interest rate is 5.5% to make sure that you can repay. What that's going to do essentially is it's probably going to lop off about 5% of the maximum amount that a lot of people can borrow. It'll vary by customers, but 5% is about the right number. Overall, it's actually a fairly modest change in the total amount that people can borrow. And most people don't borrow the maximum amount. You know, most people are borrowing a fair bit less than the maximum amount because they're worried about interest rate rises too. And it's been motivated though by the fact that as house prices have risen, as interest rates have come down, uh, mortgage credit has expanded very quickly. So if you look at the charts, like mortgage credits looks almost vertical. And so in that kind of world, you start to get worried about, 
you know, if credit grows really fast, like there is a greater risk historically that after that period, you know, you run into problems in the financial sector because banking regulations or bank the quality of the bank's loan book have what what they can loosen restrictions a little bit as they or loosen the quality of their assessments in a world when when credit growth is growing particularly quickly. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because, well, I'd hope that most people don't borrow up to their ears to get a place. I mean, when I was doing my budget for kind of uh, how much I could borrow, I was very modest in doing that because I wanted to be able to pay it off in case anything happened or the interest rates rose. But is tightening mortgage assessments a good move here? I mean, are these changes justified? It is, in a sense, a really hard question to answer because what you're doing is you're weighing up sort of two things. One thing, on the one hand, you you increase the buffer and you restrict some people's access to credit. That means some people will find it harder to borrow, particularly potentially first-home buyers and also some investors. And you're doing that um, we're on the expectation that's going to reduce some potential future risk in the financial sector. And look, there's reasons to be worried about the pace of bank lending at, my, at the moment. So one is, as we sort of talked about, when you've got rapid growth in, in lending, it often correlates with the fact that you get problems down the track because People are taking out loans they'll find harder to repay, particularly if rates rose. Banks lend about 60% of their lending is for is for housing, essentially. And so banks hold capital to make sure that if people can't repay the loans, that absorbs those losses. And that's the capital, like the equity people own shares, basically that get the, the, the dividends when things are going well. Whereas a big increase in people who couldn't repay the loan, uh, the concern normally is, well, uh, what does that do to banks' capital buffers? Do you bend up with banks failing like you did during the global financial crisis in the United States? The second reason you worry is if you've got a big increase in household debt, then that can inf- affect financial stability indirectly because people have, uh, cons- uh, have got more borrowing. That means they can't consume as much. So it affects consumer spending, particularly if rates rise. So if you saw, we don't think this is particularly likely, but you know, if interest rates do rise, then it's at low when you've got rates at 2% and debt being so high, then it sucks a larger share of people's repayments uh, or their income into repayments. So for example, you know, if my home loan's 2.5% and it raises to 3.5% interest rate, you know, that's like something like a 15% increase, 20% increase in my repayments. If I've got a big loan, that's quite a big change in my, my disposable income. And that can have economic effects as well. One way that people think about this is, look, you've kind of got these, you've got this contingent risk that you kind of can't see, but you know you think it's there. There's a worry. It's a consequence that comes about when you have lower interest rates. So we've talked recently on the podcast about the Reserve Bank. Part of that discussion, uh, for those that you know, are interested in going back and looking at it, was kind of like how do we end up where we are? Was basically the Reserve Bank didn't cut interest rates at a time when unemployment was high because they were worried about this increasing debt. Like Phil Lowe, the governor, had talked about that before. One way you can think about macroprudential tools like this serviceability buffer is a way of still allowing interest rates to be low but not have household debt rise as quickly because you're basically saying we're going to use a quantitative cap to stop the increase in, in debt while still allowing interest rates to work their way through the economy by you know cheaper credit for, for businesses and the wealth effect from rising asset prices. Is it a good idea or not? It's kind of unclear. It's hard to tell with what's in the public domain, but there's certainly a risk that the regulators are worried about. I think it's one of the interesting things that we were talking about before the podcast prepping for this is that I didn't realise that this was a kind of tool that is not just meant to kind of limit home prices or intentionally do that, but it's actually more to stop 
things like banks going bust because if there's suddenly a whole bunch of borrowers that can't repay their loans, I mean, that has a high risk for the bank itself. But yeah, it was really interesting to hear that perspective from you. And I mean, there was something that you brought up that this isn't actually a good tool to use to reduce house prices. I think that was something you were talking about before. So APRA is very explicit in saying this is not about reducing house prices, right? Because their job, they don't see their job as having a mandate to reduce prices. They're about making sure the financial system doesn't fall over. That's worth noting because these these policies aren't costless. So restricting people's ability to borrow has effects on, on people that would like to buy a house because you are restricting what they can borrow. And most people borrow the majority of the purchase price. Like the average first home buyer borrows 83% of the purchase price when they buy when they take out a new loan. So the loan to valuation ratio is normally 83%. And it's been pretty steady at that over the last decade. These kind of restrictions on credit can have the effect of making it harder for first-time buyers to get into the market for some. So you can think of it almost as the group that wins out of this is the group that aren't affected by the controls, but see prices being a bit lower as a result of the controls. So they borrow the same amount and pay less. Banks also win, by the way, in a sense, because you might think that banks would lose through this scenario. But what ends up happening is, and the the Productivity Commission did a report on this a few years ago in, on, on financial sector competition, because you make it harder for people to borrow, you're, you're restricting like the amount you can get for a new loan. That also makes it harder to refinance. So if you borrowed more than in the past than what you would be allowed to do today, and you need to refinance or you want to refinance for a lower rate, you can't. It's much harder to. And so what happened was banks actually put up the interest rates on those sort of like high debt to income loans. And um, the Productivity Commission estimated that it boosted bank profits by about a billion dollars. It's not costless. The, the groups that lose are obviously prospective home buyers who can no longer afford to buy the same home they could have before with the controls. Yeah, the existing borrowers that can't refinance and, you know, home sellers, you know, lose as well. Not that I, I have too much sympathy for that. As someone who's trying to sell a house, it could affect us. The impact of these particular changes is probably going to be pretty modest. Changes in the past had a much bigger effect. These ones are probably going to have a small effect, but it could be the first of a few. I just want to know what's happened in the past when APRA have loosened or tightened these lending restrictions before. So the last sort of boom we had in prices sort of ran from, you know, 2013-14 through to 2017. And during that period, quite a lot of the lending was actually being taken out by um, investors. You know, the way that we coordinate these policies is through a group called the Council of Financial Regulators. So on that is APRA, which is the banking regulator, ASIC, which, you know, sort of um, is the regulate sort of uh, financial products and the like, the Treasury and the Reserve Bank, but APRA is ultimately responsible for the for implementing the rules. They were worried about the increases in in particular forms of lending. So worried about riskier lending, like uh, lending to investors, because that is riskier because they've often got higher debt. Uh, lending for interest only purposes is riskier because you're not reducing the principal. So over time, it ends up being a riskier loan. You got more outstanding. They actually did the opposite of what we're now doing, where they increase the serviceability buffers. And so they increased them to 7%. Say at the time, mortgage rates might have been like four. And they said, you've got to assess the loan assuming the interest rate is at least seven. In the past, after the 2019 election, APRA changed course again. It reduced that serviceability buffer from five, from seven up to three percentage points or so two and a half percentage points above the prevailing interest rate. And at the time, interest rates were about three. That meant the serviceability buffer kicked in about five and a half. So instead of being assessed in a loan of 7% interest rate, you're assessed at a loan of 5.5% interest rate. That was a much bigger fall. 
that probably boosted borrowing capacity by 15%. And some work we did in the past on the Grattan blog showed that the election happened, nothing really happened to house prices, even though the Labor didn't win and therefore needed gearing reform and capital gains tax reform in a way. Uh, interest rates were cut by uh, the Reserve Bank after the election. That didn't have any effect in June and again in July. Then the APRA had announced the change in that serviceability buffer, cutting it from seven down to five and a half effectively before the election. But then after the election, they actually implemented it with the banks through sort of late July, August, and literally the next weekend, house prices started going up. And they rose quite a lot before you hit COVID in 2020, things flatlined and then have exploded again since. So they can have big effects on prices. This one will probably only have a modest effect, maybe it might be five percentage points slower growth in prices, whereas the last one looked like it was bigger than that as an effect, maybe 10 or more. So, Brendan, Philip Lowe has indicated that RBA is not going to put up interest rates until 2024. How do APRA's measures relate to monetary policy and are they being used instead of interest rate rises? We did talk about that a little bit before. Basically, you know, I do tend to think that this has been done in lieu of rate rises and that that is a good idea. So, in the past, the Reserve Bank didn't cut rates in the period leading into COVID. Somewhat explicitly, although they may contest it, this interpretation, they look like from the outside they were adopting a policy of what you call lean against the wind, which is basically you don't cut rates because you're worried about how rising household debt. And Phil Lowe did a lot of work on that topic um, in the past. There's a lot, a lot of publications on it, particularly when he was at the Bank of International Settlements, which is this global club of central bankers. Some of the academic research that's come out from the Reserve Bank's own research department has tended to suggest that's a bad idea. Leaning against the wind has the effect of meaning unemployment's higher than it should be. Potentially wages growth is slower than it should be. At the, and the benefit is you get a lower risk of financial crises. And on the plausible estimates that exist, the welfare costs, like the costs of that policy is sometimes between somewhere between three and eight times the benefits in terms of lower rates of financial crises. When you're thinking about comparing it all in the context of if a financial crisis causes a big spike in unemployment, whereas you're wearing a small increase in unemployment for a long period if you lean against the wind instead, tends to suggest it doesn't work. Now, Lowe has since been very explicit when asked, are you going to raise rates to head off financial stability? And he's been very explicit in saying no. And so, you know, we think that's a good idea in part because, you know, if you're trying to solve two problems, like if you're trying to you know, run an economy at full employment and keep inflation under control, which is sort of the bank's job. And then you're also worried about financial stability. You kind of need two instruments to deal with two objectives. And so the second instrument here is using macroprudential policy. And so it's better than a world where we raise rates. That would be a very counterproductive thing to do right now. And so macroprudential rules may be in fact be a, a necessary evil um, that you need to have those controls in place to minimise the risks of financial blowouts in lending leading to financial problems down the track. Is there a better way to do all this? Yeah, the short answer is um, yes, in the sense that we've been critical before, say, how the Reserve Bank conducts monetary policy and how transparent it is. Uh, but the Reserve Bank is much more transparent in how it conducts monetary policy than what regulators are when they're conducting uh, financial regulatory policy like this, these macroprudential controls. Uh, and that really matters because if if you're thinking of macroprudential as now being a necessary arm of of monetary policy in a world where interest rates are really low, anytime you cut rates or shift rates has big effects on debt because rates are so low, then we probably should be more explicit and more transparent about what the objective here. So that I think that's where it's probably not as clear cut as what it could be, which is 
you know, there's there's two stated reasons you often want to use these policies. One is the risk that the banks may get into trouble if they've lent money to people that are going to struggle to repay. Now, there are other ways to solve that problem. If you're worried about the banks, a, a, a genuine question is why not just increase the capital buffers that banks have to have to hold against their loans? Just to dig in there, what is a capital buffer against a loan? Like for the noobs out here that like me who don't know what that is. Yeah, so basically, you know, if, if, if a bank lends 100 bucks, um, then it's got to hold, you know, a certain amount of capital um, to absorb any losses so that if like three, $3 of that money never gets repaid, the bank doesn't go bust because uh, the worry is if the bank exhausts its capital, the capital is there. That That's equity investors, people investing in CBA shares and NAB shares because uh, they, they get the benefit of good dividends when things are good, but they, 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 they're being compensated for risk. If things go badly, then they're the first ones to lose their money. Whereas the depositors, you know, are guaranteed by government to make sure that they don't lose their money. And so if you're lending money, as banks do, and there's some risk it doesn't be re- repaid, which is what banks should do. You shouldn't just lend to people who will 100% repay the loan. Otherwise, it's not, you, you're leaving lots of loans on the table that would improve economic growth in the economy. What you're basically doing is saying, you say it's $100 of lending, you know, maybe you've got to hold $15 of capital. And that means, you know, if $15 doesn't get repaid, then, you know, the bank's exhausted its capital buffers. So if you're worried that banks might end up lending to people who are where, uh, for bigger loans and lend, and home loaning and lending ends up being a big part of its book, you know, you could just raise the capital capital buffers. Now, Grattan hasn't done work on that topic yet. It's something we're thinking about, but that, that's an alternative way of trying to solve that problem. If it's the second concern, which is like, you know, rising debt is going to lead to sort of consumption, falling consumption if interest rates rise and that's going to hit the economy. I, I don't kind of fully understand the logic of using macroprudential tools to solve that problem because, you know, the answer might just be use smaller incremental increases in rates, interest rates if you're, you know, whereas you used to have to raise rates by 25.25% is the standard chunk in which the Reserve Bank changes, moves interest rates. Maybe now it's 0.1% will have the same effect on, on, on the macroeconomy. So smaller effects are needed when you've got more debt. What we would like to see is, you know, APRA and the Council for Financial Regulators be more explicit about one, what's the objective with these policies? Like are these policies there about protecting the banks? Are they there about protecting financial stability via the hit to consumption from highly indebted households? Um, what's the relationship between these things? We probably don't have as much research on things like what's the how much riskier does the financial sector get when you've got, you know, an increase in debt? And so what would be really helpful is to for APRA and the Council of Financial Regulators to be probably more explicit about these things. There's been recommendations from the Productivity Commission competition regulator, the ACCC should be on that group as well to make sure that the policies don't just effectively allow the banks to form a cartel and charge higher prices to, to, to borrowers. But stepping back and thinking more broadly in the context of the review that potentially might happen in the RBA, you know, it's also worth thinking, should you have a more transparent process for actually setting these policies up. So in the UK, for example, the Bank of England, which is their central bank, it has a monetary policy committee that runs, you know, sets interest rates and has experts and so on and so forth. And then it also has overlapping membership from a financial stability committee. It has the reserve bank governor on it or the central bank governor on it. It has the head of the financial regulator on it, but it also has academics that are experts in those areas and it has its own bank minutes in the same way as the monetary policy committee does. And that would potentially, that's something that we should be exploring in the context of any review of the bank because it's kind of, with interest rates so low, it is almost impossible 
to talk about monetary policy, to talk about how you set interest rates to keep the economy at full employment without having to think about financial stability because debt has increased so much relative to incomes over the last 20 years. So, Brendan, are you essentially saying that government organisations should work together more? Well, they should work together more, but it also needs to be in a transparent way. Like, you know, because these institutions, they do have different objectives. Like the Prudential Regulator, APRA, uh, is really worried about banks falling over. Like, that's its job. It's not so worried about competition. You know, I'm sure they dispute that. that They do think about it a little bit, but they probably don't think about it as much as HCC does when it's thinking about competition. And we saw these sorts of things play out with the Banking Royal Commission with Super, where APRA was the regulator for Super, and it probably wasn't that focused on making sure that Super fund members were getting a good deal. They were ensuring that in superannuation funds didn't go bankrupt, and that's a different job and a different. They're both important, where you need everyone in the room to think about the trade-offs between those different objectives, and we probably don't have that quite as much as we'd like today. And it's certainly an interesting question that comes up time and again, especially in the economic policy area, is what are the trade-offs we make? Who are the winners and losers? And where are the goals sitting here? And it's been interesting because I've been reading a, um, a book recently on technology system error, and they talk about this exact kind of issue in technology development is that you know, each area has such individualistic goals and they're really focused on getting that thing. But how many times do we step back and say, well, what's the bigger picture here? Who are we meant to be serving? Are we trying to keep the banks afloat? How do we manage it with ways that help everyday Australians as well? Like, it's such a complex question of economics here. And and I find that really interesting about your area of work. Just one last question before we wrap up here is stepping back from these new rules. I mean, house prices have exploded in the past 18 months, and we've kind of established that this isn't necessarily the way to reduce house prices here. But what is the flow-on effect if we don't get a handle on housing affordability coming out of the pandemic? Yeah, so that's we should we'll probably do another podcast on that whole topic. I suspect leading into the election um, over the next few months. But you know, the short answer is prices have risen twenty plus percent across most major capital cities and in regional areas since COVID hit. Uh, that's largely been driven, not exclusively, but quite a lot of it's been driven by low interest rates. Uh, we've talked about before. There's a very direct link between those two. And so the question is kind of, okay, well, what does that mean for our community, our society, if we're in a world where prices are now increasingly running ahead of incomes um, and there's a growing divide between those, the housing haves and the have-nots? Like, I think the thing you probably really worry about is a world, we're entering into this world where, you know, the world of Jane Austen, 19th century, where you are seeing people own homes in part, nice parts of cities and the home is worth as much as a person can expect to ever earn over their entire working life. You know, so if you've got a $3 million or $4 million house in a nice part of Sydney or Melbourne, like a particularly nice part of Sydney or Melbourne, that's as much as, you know, a lot of us will earn over our lifetimes. And it, it takes you back to a world where as house prices rise, you'll get more greater inheritances. And we know that inheritances are not equally distributed across the community. Wealthier people tend to have wealthier parents. And so you'll see a lot of people increasingly owning what, two or three houses, because I'll inherit them, and other people who have never been able to get into the market in the first place and renting from those that own them. We have seen that housing, rising house prices have increased inequality in Australia, and that is particularly wealth inequality, and that's something we should be really worried about. So the solutions, we, we put in a submission recently the, to Jason Flinsky's inquiry, so the House of Reps, Federal House of Reps has got an inquiry going into housing affordability. It's focused largely on supply. That is a big part of the solution. Look, it's 
it's pretty simple. One, build more houses, which is about fixing the planning system. Two, fixing the tax concessions that are inflating demand for housing. We had an election last time that was about some of those, negative gearing and capital gains tax. Three, make renting more affordable and attractive if we're going to be in a world where people are going to rent for longer, particularly with families. And four, the best way to help low-income earners is one, to make housing cheaper, which is the first three things we talked about. But then two, give them more income, give them more support, raise rent assistance. So if you want to see any of that work, um, we put in the submission recently. It's on the website. It's basically what we've been saying at Grattan for about housing affordability for most of the last five years. And you've probably heard it on this podcast a few times too. Brendan, I really look forward to digging into one of my passion topics, which is housing and Jane Austen. They are my two loves, and I really look forward to talking to you on the podcast about that sooner rather than later. Thanks. I'll see if I can go to an op shop and find something appropriate for if we can dress in theme for it. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, please follow us on your favourite podcasting app. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, we're on YouTube and Twitter and our website. Please hit us up on social media at Grattan Inst on Twitter and Grattan Institute on all other social media networks. As it's a difficult time for many of us going in and out of lockdowns, we hope you're doing well. Please get vaccinated and take care.